Let's actually just start out by reading the whole psalm. A psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My heart, my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand afar off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, and like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only do not let them rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful. We're so grateful for your word. We know that it shows us Jesus Christ. We know that this text is about Jesus Christ and shows us Jesus Christ. Well, look at how. Show us him this morning. Show us ourselves. Let us understand ourselves and you and our Savior rightly today so that we might see your love, see your grace, and be transformed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're continuing with our Teach Us to Pray series, and we're going to dig into God's Word to see what it looks like to confess our sins in prayer. Before we start working through the text, I need to take a step back, and I think we ought to ask a more basic question. Why is it necessary that we confess our sins to God? Why is it necessary? Do you confess sin in order to inform God, to let him know that you've done something wrong? We, we do that with one another sometimes, right? We've sinned against another person. They might not even know it. We have to actually come to them and say, hey, listen, I need you to know I've sinned against you. 
Is that what we're doing with God, informing him? Of course not. God sees you completely at all times. He observes your actions and your words. He perceives your thoughts and your emotions. He perfectly understands all of your motives. And he sees into the innermost corners of your heart. No, God knows everything about you. He knows and understands you far better than any other person does. He knows and understands you better than you know and understand yourself. Hebrews 4.13 And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This means, of course, that your sin is not hidden from the Lord. My sin is never hidden from the Lord. And he does not need us to let him know about it. So why is it necessary then for us to come to him regularly, confessing our sin to him? Let's let's look at a, a different example. Consider this exchange between God and our first parents concerning the very first sin. This is what Genesis 3 says. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman which you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now what's going on? The Lord is asking questions, probing questions. Now, he already knows the answers to these questions, so what is it that he wants from Adam and Eve? He wants them to stop hiding. He wants them to admit what they have done. And he wants them to acknowledge that this thing that they have done is the very thing that he commanded them not to do. In other words, he wants them to tell the truth. The truth about him, the truth about themselves, and the truth about their actions which have broken his commands. Friends, this is what confession is. It's acknowledging to God the truth about our sin. And here's why confession is so necessary. It's not about information. It's about the relationship. Sin breaks the relationship between us and God. And as long as we continue to hide and lie and make excuses and evade, there can be no hope of our relationship with him 
being reconciled. We have to stop hiding. We have to come clean. But here's the promise if we do. 1 John 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, is that you this morning? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, you might have come here today as a Christian, a child of God, beloved by him, but still still sinning every day as every believer this side of heaven does. Or you might have come here this morning as a non-Christian, still estranged from God, still hiding amongst the trees, vainly attempting to hide from Him. But whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, God has the same word for us this morning. The same word for us both. If we would be forgiven of our sins, we need to drop the deception and agree with the Lord about what is true. We need to confess our sins. And that's what David's doing in Psalm 38, which is our primary text today. As we go through the text, you may find it helpful to take a look at that gray bulletin insert in there. Uh, That'll help you kind of walk through the text. So let's turn to consider it. We're going we're gonna to first look at the question, what does true confession look like? And in verses 1 to 14, we see that true confession, first off, looks like understanding just how devastating my sin really is. Now, why is sin so devastating? So utterly devastating. Well, first, because it incurs God's wrath. Let's look again at verses 1 and 2. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. As you can see from the superscription, this is a psalm of David, David is the psalmist. He's the sinner and he's the confessor of sin in this psalm. We're not given any historical occasion. Uh, You know, Psalm 51, you know that 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 psalm of confession is is written in response to his sin with with Bathsheba and and with Uriah. But there's no occasion given here. So we don't know what what sin of David's that has prompted him to make this confession. But what we do know is he is suffering under God's heavy hand. He starts off by lamenting, really, he starts out out exactly where he ought to. He starts out with lamenting the most devastating thing about sin, and that's that it makes him liable to the judgment of God. His sin deserves, and he understands that his sin deserves, God's anger and his wrath. And he understands that God is currently bringing the consequences of his sin down upon him. But still... 
But still, he pleads with God for mercy. He knows he's going to undergo God's discipline. He knows he's going to incur God's rebuke. But he asks that it not be in anger and in wrath. In other words, he asks for the the discipline of a father and not the condemnation of a judge. He asks this because he knows that God's full anger against his sin would utterly destroy him. So he pleads for mercy. And this, friends, gives us the first thing that we have to agree with God about when we confess our sins. Confession, even the Greek word means to say the same thing, to agree with God. What must me what what must we agree with God about when we confess our sins? Number one, sin truly deserves God's heavy judgment. Our confessor here doesn't dispute this. He doesn't whine that it's unfair of God to treat him like this, or that his sin isn't bad enough to warrant this kind of punishment. He just simply assumes that God's judgment against his sin, is just. It's God, so it's righteous. Now some of you, I fear, are still fighting God on this very point. You might be willing to acknowledge that you're not perfect. You might acknowledge that you, sure, you have some flaws. But guilty? Guilty in the sight of God? And worthy of his judgment? No. No. That, that doesn't fit. That's what you think. Listen to me. How do we measure how bad and wicked our sin is? It's not by how badly we feel about it. We measure it by the penalty that it incurs. And friends, God's word just makes this very plain. The penalty your sin incurs is death and ultimately eternal separation from God, suffering in hell. Even you Awana Sparkies know this, right? What's Romans 6.23 say? The wages of sin, Sparkies, the wages of sin is death. And what does death look like? Well, Paul fleshes it out for us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says Jesus one day is going to return to this earth and he will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And my unbelieving friend, you actually know in your heart of hearts that you deserve this. The scriptures say so. At the end of Romans 1, Paul gives a a whole long list of sins that you and I would easily recognize as things we're guilty of. And then he says this, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And yet they keep doing them. So my friend, I ask you, are you willing to see this? 
Are you willing to confess rightly? Maybe for the very first time. Are you finally willing to agree with God about what reality is? Agree with God. Oh God, my sin justly deserves your wrath and your judgment. I really deserve, I really deserve to spend eternity in hell because of my sin against you. This is what your word says. I acknowledge it to be true. You see, you and God have to agree on this point. That's what he says about you. You don't have the right to think otherwise. You have to get on his page. Now, those of you who are are believers in Christ, let us take heed to this also. Are you in the habit of seeing the sins that you still commit every day? Are you in the habit of seeing them as sins that are grievous in God's holy sight? Sins that deserve his anger? We mustn't pass over this fact too quickly. Are we forgiven in Christ? Praise be to God, we are. We really are. More on that in a minute. But what are we forgiven for? Hateful sins, loathsome sins, hell-deserving sins. Let us come before God regularly and agree with him that that's what they are, that that's what still remains, that God is purging away from us. Praise him. But he's not done yet, and the sin remains. Okay, we need to move on. But sin is devastating because it incurs God's wrath. It also is devastating because it harms me in every conceivable way. Let's look at verses 3 through 8 again. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about in mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. So consider what our confessor is lamenting here. His sin, and God's displeasure with his sin, and his anguish because of God's displeasure is causing him to waste away. He's suffering greatly. He talks about his bodily affliction. He talks about his soul affliction, his mental affliction. Sin is like, sin is like swallowing bleach. It's like swallowing bleach. It ulcerates and corrodes us. It eats us up from the inside. No soundness, no health, burning, crushed, feeble, stinking, festering. Sin is like a tsunami. It crushes and overpowers us. Do you think that you can handle sin? You can handle sin? That's delusional. It is stronger than you are. Sin causes untold grief and misery. It has brought this man to a shameful state, a pitiable state. Now, I can actually remember, not every every believer undergoes this, but... The Lord saw fit to to do it for me. I remember when this was my experience. 
I was about 15. I'd come under conviction of sin. I had not yet turned to Jesus Christ. And for the first time in my life, I got this. I realized that my sins were too heavy for me. I was headed for hell, deservedly so. I at last recognized that it would be absolutely just of God to send me there because of how I'd hated him and cursed him and rebelled against him. And the horror of what it would mean to be justly condemned forever. Forever and ever and ever. It was, it was really the eternity of it that staggered me. To be there under the wrath of God for a thousand years and then for that to be only the first drop. There will be no hope in hell. And I was undone by that thought. And so for several months, I was in a near constant state of dread and anguish over my sin. So I can bear out some of the truth of those verses. This is a picture of what sin did to me. I felt it. But listen, it is what sin is doing to you, whether you feel it to be so or not. Your sin is harming you in every way. Will you not let God's word convince you of it? Will you not agree with him? Will you not confess that before him? Your sin harms you in every way. And then a last reason sin is devastating, because it alienates friends and emboldens foes. Look at verse 9 again. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. My nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and treachery all day long. But I'm like a deaf man, I don't hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. See, our, our, our chap here has been stri- stricken by God and that has two effects on his relationships with other people. First, those who care about him are so horrified by what has come upon him that they actually withdraw from him. They can't take it anymore. So he's been abandoned by his friends. And then secondly, his sin and his suffering have made him vulnerable to attack from his enemies. Since he has, in fact, sinned, it's that much easier for his foes to discredit him and tear him down. And all the while, they can pretend that they're doing God's work. Also, he's weakened because of the affliction that God has put him to. You can be sure his enemies will take full advantage of that. And he's going to be unable to give an answer. He cannot open his mouth against those who are accusing him. See, friends, there are, there are social consequences to sin. It can strain the bonds of fellowship. It can estrange you from others. And if you're a Christian and your sin becomes known to, 
to those outside the church, that provides an opportunity for the enemies of the gospel to exalt and scoff and to urge others to reject Jesus. Because after all, well, look at that guy. Take a, take a look at all the harm that Christianity has done through that person. You see? Once again, we see how sin is utterly devastating. It's destructive. It's destructive to our fellowship with God. It harms our relationships with other people. And it threatens to bring us into utter misery and ruin. Sin is devastating. And thus we come to what it means to truly confess our sins to God. We agree with God that our sin has made a total wreck of things. That we're guilty. That we're undone. That we're the problem. That it's right for a holy God to be angry with our sin. That we're deserving of his condemnation. Full stop. No more words. Remember how the tax collector in the temple responds when he's convicted of his sin? Jesus tells the parable. He says, the guy doesn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beats his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, if this was where confession stopped just acknowledging my sin before God, it actually isn't, there's not a lot of hope, right? That would leave us in a really sorry mess indeed. Oh God, I'm a sinner and I deserve your judgment. Where's the hope? Well, that's one element of true confession. And then here's another one, and that's where all the hope enters in. Because true confession goes on beyond acknowledgement of sin, and it turns to God. It turns to God and his salvation. Now this at first might seem counterintuitive. After all, who's the offended party? God is. God's the one we spurned. God's the one we rebelled against. God's the one that we made our enemy. God's the one we've been hiding from and trying so hard to hide from. Now how is it that we would now turn to but it's actually the only thing to be done. You see, true confession of sin, true confession of sin involves faith. Faith in the goodness and the salvation of God. I believe, it says, I believe that the Lord against whom I've sinned is also the one with the remedy. He's the one with the remedy. Let's see this in our text. Verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I'm ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. See, the confessor believes that God is going to be the one who will provide the solution. And he knows that there's nothing else that he can look to to rescue him. It's got to be the Lord. The one whose hand is currently against him. The one whom he has wronged. That's who he's convinced is the one who's also going to help him. Now the situation is still dire. He doesn't see the light at the end of the tunnel quite yet. But he is certain that it is God who will answer 
to rescue him. And so he waits. He waits on this answer from the one who's currently, his hand is against him. Now, how can our confessor do that? How can he go back to God and wait on his salvation? Because God, because he's just agreeing with God again, what has God said? God has told him that he's a saving God. It's how he revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. He said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so he's just confessing, Lord, I agree with you. You are a merciful God who deals with sin. I believe you're going to deal with my sin. You're going to forgive my iniquity. And somehow you're going to do that without compromising your justice. Because you're also not going to clear the guilty. And and I know I'm guilty. So somehow that's going to work. This is what you say to be true, and I confess it to be true. That's what he does. He goes back to the Lord, turns to God. Having turned to God, I go on, and I take responsibility for my sin. And I forsake it. That's what confession does. Look at verse 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. They're mighty. Many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. He's just very simple. I confess my iniquity. I'm in the wrong. No excuses. No blame shifting. No self-justification. I don't say, this woman who you gave to me, she gave me of the tree and I ate her fault? Kind of your fault? No blame shifting. I don't say, well, if if you only knew the kind of background I had. I don't say, I couldn't help it after what they did to me. I don't say, I can't help it, I was just born this way. I don't say, God's sovereign, so of course I can't help it. None of that. None of that. I take responsibility. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. And it goes without saying that included in this is his resolve to turn away from sin and forsake it. So finally, having taken responsibility, he calls upon the Lord for salvation. Verse 21. Don't forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So once again, he acknowledges, he agrees with God that salvation is of the Lord. He's a God who saves sinners. This is what he said, and I'm going to agree with him. I confess this to be true. He just takes the Lord at his word. And he cries out to him for mercy and for help. So we see these two things. True confession, number one, acknowledges my sin and guilt before a holy God. And two, true confession turns from sin to God 
and to his salvation. In all these things, I agree with God. I come to agree with God's version of reality about my sin, about who I am, about what I've done, about who he is. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is really good news. Except, except there's still a piece missing. There's still a piece missing that we've got to get before it can be really good news. I wonder if you've noticed what it is. See, confession believes that the Lord against whom I've sinned is also the one who has the remedy. But what's actually the remedy? Well, someone might say, well, it's, the remedy is that God's a forgiving God. Yeah, that's right. But what about his holiness? What about his justice? What about the anger that we've already seen is against my sin? Does that just all go away somehow? I thought he said he will by no means clear the guilty. He, he did indeed say that. So where's this remedy? Why would he forgive my sin? How can he justly forgive my sin? These are, these are good questions. So here we need to look at what the remedy is that true confession looks to. And the remedy is that God has provided Jesus Christ as a savior for the guilty. Jesus Christ is provided by God as the remedy for guilty sinners like you and me. Psalm 38 actually shows us how that happened. You see, when Adam and Eve fell and plunged all of us into sin, God on that day made a promise. One day, a Savior would come who would defeat sin, who would defeat all the devastation that sin had brought into the world. And sure enough, according to promise, Many years later, when the time was just right, God did send forth that Savior. Jesus, who is God the Son, was sent into our world by the Father to rescue sinners. And the Son took on our humanity and he was made man. And he lived a perfectly sinless life. Not one stain on his character. Not one moment of failure. Not a single act or word or emotion or motive that was at all out of keeping with his Father's will, even for an instant. No sin at all. Perfect righteousness. And then in the final great act of obedience to his Father, Jesus laid down his life and allowed himself to be nailed to the cross. And when he was lifted up on the cross, something wonderful and terrible happened. The most wonderful and most terrible thing that's ever happened. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. 1 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Now, what exactly does that mean? 
What does it mean that Jesus Christ became sin? We're never going to understand the full depths of that question, even in eternity. But here's a bit of it. It means that Jesus really and truly took the sin of the world upon himself. He assumed full and complete responsibility for the sins of his people as if he had committed them himself. He fully took on the identity of sinful humanity. He united himself to us in our sin so that all our sin really became his. And so when the Father looked on Jesus, he saw sin. He saw sin. Sin in all of its horror and all of its evil. Jesus became sin in the sight of God. And when that happened, all the things, all the horrors of this psalm were brought to bear on Jesus. The Lord's hand came down on him. The judgment of God crashed in on him like a tsunami. It surged over his head. He was crushed under the full weight of God's righteous anger and indignation against our wickedness, against our rebellion. And in the midst of that storm, Jesus cried out. Jesus cries out and he confesses sin. Sin that's ours, but that has become truly his. Sin that's right now crushing and undoing him as he hangs there on the cross. And Psalm 38 captures that cry. O Lord, he cries, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. Right? He can even say, my sin. It really became his. It was yours. It became his. I'm bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. All my longing is before you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. There's no soundness in me. My my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. Right? He turns. For you, O Lord, do I wait. It's you, O Lord, who will answer. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. Don't forsake me. Don't be far from me. Make haste to help me. Friends, Jesus is the remedy that God has provided. He took on our iniquities and he died for them so that Jesus could forgive us without compromising his justice. The wrath of God fell upon Jesus, and so it need not fall upon you. It need not. He who knew no sin became sin for us, to what effect that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He is God's remedy. He is the Savior for the guilty. And so, friends, especially those of you who don't, haven't yet looked to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to the remedy. There is no other hope but Him. There is no other Savior. There is no other one in whom there is salvation. The only one you can turn to is the one you've offended. God Almighty who gave His Son in love for you. Remember, how do you measure how bad sin is? We have to measure it by the penalty that it incurs. 
Your sin required the death of the sinless Son of God and the breaking of fellowship between the Father and the Son for a short time. That's what your sin required. That's how bad your sin actually is. That's what the song we sang this morning says. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who it is who bears the awful load, the Word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man, Son of God. That's what it took, the death of the sinless Son. Unbelievers, this is what your sin deserves. This is what Jesus is willingly making available to you. He's willingly offering himself to you and saying, I died for sinners. Will you not have me? I urge you to take him, to take his death as the only remedy for your sin. My brothers and sisters in Christ, this this causes us to rejoice, does it not? That Jesus would lay down his life and suffer the pains and agonies of death and hell for us so that we might never have to taste them. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the very dregs. But it it ought to have another effect as well, not just rejoicing. It, It should have the effect of causing us to hate sin. Sin should horrify us. Our sin should horrify us. When we think of what it cost Jesus Christ, right, if I'm If I'm tempted and I'm contemplating a certain sin and I find it desirable and I I want it and then I remember that this is the thing that caused Jesus to have to go to the cross. This is the thing that caused my Savior to undergo the pains and agonies of hell suddenly that thing becomes a loathsome thing. It ought to, at least. And so the thing that suddenly attracts us ought to repulse us because we love Jesus and we're so amazed that he would deliver our souls by becoming sin for us. And so sin ought to be as bitter poison in our mouths. This should cause us to be able to turn from it and to be able to live forsaking it. Sin should be most horrible to us. Now we see how the Savior is provided, but with this Savior, God God adds to him a promise, a promise for the humble. See, God says that he's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So friends, God's salvation is available for all those who will turn to him in repentance. This is what we've seen. So let us confess our sins to the Lord. Whether you're coming to Jesus for the very first time, whether you're coming to him for the umpteenth time, confess your sinfulness. Confess 
your specific sins. In humility, mourn for them. Be sorrowful that they caused the death of the Son of God. Confess your sinfulness and confess your specific sins. Give them names. Give them biblical names. Don't say, I was, I was frustrated with the kids. Say, I was given to anger. Lust, anger, malice, envy, greed, discontent, sexual immorality, covetousness, idolatry, pride. Give them names. Drag them, each one kicking and screaming, out into the light of God's truth and say, Lord Jesus, I confess I've committed these sins. How hateful they are in your sight. How greatly you had to suffer for them. How greatly they dishonor you. I'm sorry for these sins. So help me to forsake them. Help me to recognize them for the vile things that they are and the danger that they pose to my soul. But I'm looking to you. I believe you died for me, that you shed your blood for these particular sins. You've promised to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And that, that forgiveness is just because you paid the penalty. And finally, God's God's remedy doesn't just give us a savior, doesn't just give us the promise for the humble. It, It includes a new life for those who have been forgiven. Which means, beloved, that once you have confessed your sins, leave them there. Leave them there. Don't let them follow you home. Leave them at the foot of Jesus' cross. Because if you've believed in him, then you truly are the righteousness of God in him. You really are forgiven. Because his sacrifice really is that good. It's completely sufficient to cover every sin. You know, that was the truth that finally broke through to my darkened mind when I was a teenager. Jesus' blood is enough to cover And he's willing that it should cover even my sin. It's able and it's willing. And this means once we have confessed our sin to God and claimed forgiveness through the blood of Jesus, we can rise from our knees and leave our old sinful self behind and go out to walk in newness of life. Not perfectly, but truly in a new way. Because Jesus has died, we died with him. But Jesus rose again, didn't he? And we're raised as well, no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. So let us confess our sins to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... We want to see our sins rightly. We don't want to keep pretending that they're something trivial. Whether whether we're believers here today or unbelievers, we need to be able to understand how horrific and how awful sin is. And that will allow us to see how glorious and wonderful and loving is our Savior, that he would undergo the punishment for those terrible sins.
Lord, teach us that. Teach us and show us him in all of his glory, all of his saving glory, and may we look to him. He's the only one with the remedy. May we look to him. In Jesus' name, amen.